chapter 6. We're still in Judges chapter 6 as we're uh, looking at the life of Gideon and, uh, and talking about this question, who, me, and how it is that God raises up and equips people to change circumstances in the world. So if you'll open your Bibles to Judges chapter 6, and uh, if you'll leave your Bibles open, we're going to need them open all morning. And so you want to keep them open on your lap. You can Certainly uh, use your phone app or whatever, however you want to read that. But uh, Judges chapter 6, and today what we're going to do is we're going to look at one of the most misunderstood and misapplied stories in the Bible. If you grew up in church, you probably heard the story that we're going to be talking about this morning. And I'm going to bet the chances are at least 50-50 that you heard it wrong. You heard it mistaught. And there are a couple reasons that the passage we're going to look at this morning is mistaught. I want to explain a couple of those reasons before we look at it. First reason this passage is often mistaught and misapplied is because of sloppy Bible interpretation. Bad Bible study methods. Uh, if you read the passage we're going to look at this morning, in its context, it's pretty easy to understand what's going on. If you've read what's happened prior to reading it, It's pretty easy to see what's going on. But if you read it in isolation, and you just treat it as an an individual story without understanding how it's connected with what we've already looked at, then it's easy to come come away with an improper understanding of what's really happening in this passage. And that's what people do too often. And so that's one reason. It's just uh, sloppy Bible study methods. But we've been in this study for several weeks, and so we understand some of the context. It will be easier for us to process this and understand what's going to take place this morning. Uh, We'll be able to understand it more accurately because we've already been looking at some of these events in Gideon's life. The second reason this event is often misunderstood and mistaught is because we have a tendency to glorify the lives of people who are in our Bibles. All right, we kind of idealize biblical heroes. And uh, we, we put on rose-colored glasses when we're reading about people in the Bible. But the truth is, uh, that's not how these people are portrayed in the Bible. We like to idealize them, but the Bible doesn't. And my family and I, we were talking about this. I was sharing with them some of the things that I was going to be sharing with you this morning. And we were talking about that earlier this week. And we were trying to think of a major biblical figure a major biblical figure about whom nothing negative, except for Jesus, about whom nothing negative is recorded. And you can't hardly think of it. I mean, the more major figure they are, the more there's negative truth about them. The more you see their weaknesses and their shortcomings. And I think that's because the Bible is an honest book. It just speaks to the Bible's authenticity. That the Bible describes these people not with rose-colored glasses, but they describe them as they really are, as real people, strengths and weaknesses. And it's, it's uh, you know, we know that God uses people to change circumstances, but the truth is, when we read our Bible's response, we, we understand God uses fallen people, weak people, warts and all, to change circumstances. And Gideon is not perfect. In today's episode, we're going to see him act in weakness. If you read this passage with rose-colored glasses, you won't really understand what's happening. And it's going to be better for us. This responsible way of approaching the Bible is going to be better because good Bible interpretation is actually going to help us connect with Gideon better. Because who are you going to connect with better? A guy God uses who has strengths and weaknesses or a guy God uses who seems like he's perfect, right? We're going to be able to better connect with Gideon Because we're going to see what Gideon is struggling with. We're going to see him in some honest struggle. And you and I are going to be able to relate to him. Because I can guarantee you have experienced the same feelings that Gideon has experienced. 
And we're going to be able to learn from what he experiences as we go through this passage. So, what is this mistaught episode of the Bible that we're talking about? Well, to help introduce you to this, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I've got a video I want to show you. And uh, I want to show you this video for three reasons. One is I want to help introduce the text. I want you to see the passage that we're going to be studying, and it's used as the prime example in this video. Uh, I want us to also be exposed to training in good Bible study methods, and this video is going to help you better understand uh, what, uh, how to responsibly approach your Bible and read it responsibly. And the third is because I want to introduce you to this resource. It's such an excellent resource. I'm going to show you a video by a couple of super talented guys, actually a team of super talented guys and gals, and they call themselves the Bible Project. We're going to watch a video by the Bible Project. And they are an animation studio out of Portland. And in their words, they produce short-form animated videos. So short-form animated videos to make the biblical story accessible to everyone everywhere. And they do a fabulous job of it. They are creative animators, they're great storytellers, and they are theological ninjas. They are Bible study nerds who can draw. That's who they are. And they produce some great stuff, overviews of books of the Bible. And these are guys trained. These are guys seminary trained. They've got, uh, they've got there some guys from Western Seminary who help edit and make sure everything is on target. Uh, so it's, it's great stuff. They've got overviews of books of the Bible. They've got a whole series of videos on different theological subjects. And one of their, one of their um, categories is how to read your Bible. And in that section, in how to read your Bible, there is a, a video on how to read narratives. Narratives are just the stories in the Bible, especially the Old Testament. How do you read narratives? And then how do you find the plot? How do you really understand what's going on in these stories? How do you approach them properly? And that's what this video is about, because we read different parts of the Bible differently. That's not inconsistent. That's just good Bible study methods. And this video helps us understand good Bible study methods in reading narrative stories in the Bible, And uh, it uses today's episode in Gideon's life as an example. So it's going to introduce us to our text. And the story we're going to be talking about this morning is the story of Gideon and the fleece. If you know what that is, if you don't know what that is, you'll see it here in a minute as we watch this video by the Bible Project. We're learning how to read different types of literature in the Bible. And we're going to start by talking about biblical narrative. So narratives, in their most basic form, have characters in a setting going through a series of events. And how those events are selected and then arranged by an author, that's called the plot. A basic plot line begins with a character in her setting. But then something new or unexpected happens, causing problems that lead up to some ultimate conflict, which is then resolved and the character finds herself changed, living in a new normal. Now, in reading narratives, it's important to understand every scene in the context of its larger plotline. 
You can make the same story have a totally different message if you ignore where it occurs in the plot. This happens all the time when people read the Bible. Really? Yeah, take, for example, the story about Gideon. There's this well-known scene where Gideon's trying to discern whether God will help him win a battle, and he requests a sign from God. Yeah, Gideon lays a wool fleece on the ground and asks that in the morning the fleece be wet with dew, but the ground totally dry, and God does it. Now, if you look at this scene just by itself, what is the conflict? How can Gideon know if he'll succeed? And the resolution? Test God, ask for a sign, and find out. Yeah, and that's how many people actually read this story, and it totally misses the point, because it's ignoring the larger plot line. Really? Yeah, so let's start from the beginning. You'll get the context. The story begins with Gideon and the Israelites living in fear because they're oppressed by an invading people, the Midianites. Got it. Then there's the call to action. God commissions Gideon to defeat the Midianites and save Israel. Yeah, this is shaping up to be a good story. But then Gideon's super hesitant, so he asks God to do this magic trick, a sign, so I can know it's really you talking to me. And God stoops to his level. He gives him a sign by lighting this fire on an altar. So Gideon's already asked for a sign. And that's not all. In the next scene, God tells Gideon to tear down an altar to another god, but Gideon's so afraid, he does it at night. So Gideon's skeptical and also a bit of a coward. Then we come to the moment where Gideon's about to face the Midianites, and he's still uncertain, so he asks for another sign, the fleece. He says, I want to know if you'll save Israel by my hand. And God gives him that sign. And he's still uncertain, so he asks for even one more sign, which is just a variation of the previous sign. Okay, so Gideon's asking for way too many signs. Exactly. In the larger context, it's clear the plot conflict is not how can Gideon discern the mysterious will of God. The real conflict is, when will this guy get his act together and start trusting God? Okay, so then what's the resolution? We have to keep reading. So Gideon gathers this huge army, 30,000 soldiers to fight the Midianites, and God says, no, way too many men. He whittles the army down to 300. Why would he do that? Well, Gideon's been testing God, so now God returns the favor. He tells Gideon to arm these 300 soldiers with trumpets and torches, and then surround the Midianites at night and make all this noise in the hills, which sounds ridiculous, but Gideon doesn't. And the noise scares the Midianites into this frenzy. They start destroying each other in the dark while Gideon looks on safely from the hills. So this story isn't offering the reader tips for discerning God's will. No, it's about God's commitment to use weak people with deep flaws to do more than they could have imagined. Okay, so short scenes like Gideon and the Fleece are combined with other scenes making up a larger plot line. And tracing the conflict and resolution through the plot helps you see the message the author's trying to get across. Now, Gideon's story has been set alongside many other stories that are also about these flawed, often questionable leaders called judges. And each of these has its own internal plot line. But then altogether they make up a whole movement of the biblical story, the period of the judges, and that has its own unified plot line. And there are many movements within the story of the Bible. Exactly. And all the smaller stories, hundreds of them, they fit within the context of their own movements. And then these movements together make up the building blocks of the grand plotline of the whole story of the Bible. So no matter where I'm reading in the Bible, I need to pay attention to these different layers of plot so I can read each story in context. Exactly. 
the Bible is such a sophisticated piece of literature. And so all these smaller plot lines keep overlapping, building up the tension. And when you back up, you can see how they've all been woven together into the unified story that leads to Jesus. That's good stuff. I have a link for you on the back of your sermon notes to this website, and you could spend all afternoon this afternoon just just uh, surfing around and learning. It's, it's solid information. It's, uh, you can trust it, and it's uh, really, really helpful. It's, it's fun to watch, and it's a great tool for you, and also something you can use with your family, with your kids. And uh, it goes a little beyond, this video goes a little bit beyond the scope of today's study and, and, and a little bit of a spoiler alert for next Sunday, but that's okay. It teaches us how to understand plot in biblical narrative and uses today's story, today's episode in Gideon's life as an example. And that's the chapter in Gideon's life that we're going to look at today. So you have your Bibles open, Judges 6, we're going to read our passage And just to remind you, uh, in addition to their review, that God has called Gideon out of obscurity to rescue Israel. God has called the guy who is 957th on his list of most likely candidates, and God's going to use him to rescue the nation of Midian. And he's promised to be with him. He says, I will be with you. And now it's time for Gideon, the mighty warrior, to go to war. And we're going to start reading in verse 33. He musters his army in verse 33. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces. Uh Uh-oh. Used to be just the Midianites. And they crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of Yahweh, the Lord, came upon Gideon. And he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiezrites to follow him. That was his village. And he sent messengers throughout Manasseh. Now he's going to the other, other tribes of Israel. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms. And also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, Naphtali, so that they went up to meet them. Other tribes of Israel. And now, now they're all together. The army's together. And then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised. Look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And this is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece, wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. He not only only answers his prayer, but he answers it overtly, very clearly. A whole bowl full of water that he squeezes out out of this fleece. And then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. And that night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. Now, the way this passage is frequently taught is that Gideon is looking for God's will. He wants to know what God wants him to to do. If you look up art on this subject, you can go to the, you can go look at, look on online. You can find art for almost any Bible passage. You can kind of look up what kinds of art and drawings and paintings and wood carvings have been produced uh, for that particular passage. And if you look up the art on this particular story in Gideon's life, he's almost always presented as this pious leader. He's on his knees holding this fleece in front of him praying to God with the soldiers hanging around him. 
and he's looking for direction from God. And that's how he's portrayed. Uh, And he's this bold person who's wanting to understand what God wants him to do. And it's used as an example for us today. It's used as a pattern sometimes in teaching of what we ought to do when we want to understand uh, God's, God's direction in our lives. We even, have, uh, we even have a little bit of Christianese that we use to describe this. Uh, we have a little phrase that we, we call it putting out a fleece. And when someone says, I'm putting out a fleece, what they mean is I'm looking for God's direction, and here's what I've done. I've given God two choices. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to watch and see if he does this or if he does this. And if this happens to me today, then I'll know something is God's will. And if this doesn't happen to me today, then I'll know it's not God's will. They put some kind of binary option in front of God, and they want to use it as a sign. And we, you know, we say, I'm putting out a fleece. And that's how we use this passage. Someone seeking God's will, they put out a fleece. They throw out a situation to God and ask for a sign. But that is not what is happening here. That is not what Gideon is doing. Gideon is not looking for God's will. He already knows God's will. God has already clearly told him what he wants to do. Look earlier in the chapter. God says in verse 14, the Lord said to him, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pretty clear. He's going to save Israel out of Midian's hand. Look at verse 16. The Lord answered, Yahweh answered, I will be with you. He repeats this promise to be with him from verse 12. And you will strike down all the Midianites together. Like they were one guy. You're going to knock them down like a bunch of bowling pins. You're going to hit one. They're all going to fall. Gideon knows what he knows God's will. He knows what God has called him to do. He knows what the result is going to be. He's not looking for God's will. He even acknowledges that in our passage. I mean, if you look, verse 36, God, uh, Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, he already acknowledges God promised he's going to do this. Keep reading. Look, I'll place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I'll know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. Twice here he acknowledges God has already told him what to do. God has already told him what's going to happen. He's, and, and not only that, but he's already asked for a sign. You remember when he was dialoguing with the angel of the Lord? And the angel of the Lord first reveals to him that this is what God wants you to do. It's all that passage we just read from in, in the middle part of chapter 6. And, and, and at a certain point in the conversation, he says to the angel of the Lord, he says, listen, you wait here, I'm going to be right back. And you remember what he goes and does? He goes and slays a goat, and he boils it, and brings the broth and the goat, and he puts it on an on altar, and God from, with fire from heaven, consumes this uh, meal. So, boom, he's already got a sign. Because he said, I want to make sure I know who, I want to make sure it's you talking to me. Well, now he's pretty sure that this is God talking to him. He knows what God has said. He's already gotten a sign. He knows what God wants. He's just afraid to do it. And that matches what we already know of Gideon. He's kind of a chicken, you know. 
He's the guy who's threshing wheat in the wine press. He's the guy who tears down the village idol at night so that no one sees who does it. And now that he's mustered his army, he's got guys looking at their, their watches. These are, these are guys who've left their families unattended, left their farms unattended. He's mustered the army. He's the one who blew the... Ch- they're ready to go. And Gideon is having second thoughts. And that's the real problem. The real problem here is not understanding God's will. It's doing it. It's not a lack of clarity. It's a lack of courage. Now for us today, sometimes the problem is knowing God's will. Sometimes it's a lack of clarity problem. It can be. I mean, we don't usually get visits from angels that tell us exactly what to do, right? And tell us the outcome. We don't get that. We don't uh, usually have miraculous signs performed in front of us as proof that it's God talking to us. That would be nice. It seems like that would be nice. Uh, So sometimes we struggle to know God's will in a certain situation. We struggle to know exactly what God wants of us. We can. But here's the thing. It shouldn't be that hard. It shouldn't be that paralyzing. God's will doesn't have to be uh, that complicated. Uh, So much of God's will uh, is revealed to us already. I mean, really, so many decisions are already pre-made for the Jesus follower. Through the teachings of the Bible, through the words and the example of Jesus, we already have so many of our decisions already pre-made. We know what kind of person we should marry. We know what kind of priorities we ought to follow. We know what kinds of relationships we ought to pursue and how we ought to pursue them. We know these things. I mean, like 95% of, of what we need to know has already been revealed to us. We have a whole book that shows us how to live. And if we'll follow these teachings, our biggest decisions will have made themselves. Now, now that's, not to say, that's not to say we don't need more direction because I share with you that same sense sometimes when, when you... Uh, you know God wants something to happen, but you don't know if it's this or this. God wants you to do something, and you just don't know what it is. I mean, I'm not saying those times don't exist. They do exist. They exist for me, too. What I am saying is many of our life's decisions are already made just by understanding what God wants on a macro level. But, uh, there, so there are times when, when we need kind of micro-level direction in our lives. And that's true. And so uh, we have some things that God has given us that Gideon didn't have to help him, uh, to help us discern on a micro-level what God wants. I like to think of four things. The Bible, prayer, circumstances, and the church. Those four things are things that we can use to help us get kind of micro-level. We already know the macro-level, but the micro-level, the Bible, uh, not this kind of Bible reading. Close your eyes, open the Bible, point to a verse, and say, that's what I'm going to do. Out of the no- this is what I got, uh, Job 36. Out of the north he comes in golden splendor. Well, something's supposed to happen with the north, you know. Uh, not that. Responsible Bible reading, which in large part just reinforces this macro level uh, teaching. Prayer. Prayer, not necessarily asking God in that moment of prayer to tell you exactly what to do. That doesn't happen to me very often. But asking God for wisdom, asking God to show you, to lead you to conversations and and, uh, uh, encounters that will help you better understand. So the Bible, prayer, circumstances. Now, circumstances are not fleeces. 
Circumstances are understanding what God might be doing by looking at trajectories, by looking at doors that are open and doors that are closed. And God leads us through those things. So the Bible, prayer, circumstances, and the church, that is, our brothers and sisters in Jesus, counsel that we get from the relationships we have with fellow Jesus followers. And those are four things that help us discern specific direction, kind of the micro-level decisions that we sometimes have to make. But here's the problem. Even the clearest word from God on what he wants us to do is not going to solve the courage problem. Because the truth is, God's will, even, God's will is always going to require courage even when you know exactly what it is. Even if you have clarity, you're going to need courage. God's will always requires courage. Take Gideon. He had tons of clarity. He had an angel tell him what to do. He had specific promises of success. He had confirming signs, but he still needed courage because he was going to have to act on the promise of God's presence just by taking God at his word. And if you think it's scary today, wait till next Sunday. I mean, our video is right. Today, Gideon tests God. Next week, God turns the tables, and God's going to test Gideon. And it's always true. It's always true. God's will requires courage. It always requires courage, even when we know what that will is. It takes courage. It takes courage to walk away from a relationship that you know is bad for you. But you know that's what God wants you to do. That takes courage. It takes courage to say no to an enticing job offer because you know it's going to force the wrong priorities on you and your family. It takes courage to, to turn that down. It takes courage to uh, go with God to a new place or accept new responsibility even when you know that's what God wants you to do. It takes courage to talk to your friends about Jesus even when you know That's what God has for you. God's will, it always requires courage, even when we know what that will is. And we're going to learn a little bit more about that next week. But you can pretty much trace the history of God's people throughout your Bible, and you see it over and over and over. God's will always requires courage, even when we know what that will is. So, if God's will always requires courage... Where does that courage come from? Where, where do you get courage? To answer that question, I want to ask you a question. Uh, what is the vision of God in this passage? Now, I don't want to lose you on that question. Some of you have heard me ask that question before. and Some of you, it's like, what? The vision of God. So here's, here's a tool. There's another Bible study tip for you. When you're studying a passage that's hard to, it's kind of a hard nut to crack, and you're not exactly sure what's going on in that passage, if you'll just ask the question, what is the vision of God in this passage? There are really two questions I ask. What's the vision of God? What's the depravity factor? That is, where could I mess this up? Where could the person in this story mess this up and go wrong? But we're not going to, we already know the depravity factor here. The depravity factor is not believing God, right? That's what could go wrong here. But what's the vision of God in this passage? Who is God in this passage? Even in a passage that doesn't tell us explicitly what God is thinking or doing, which this one doesn't exactly. It tells us that God answers his prayer 
two times, right? And, and that's about all the information we have about God. So what is the vision of God in this passage? I think it's pretty easy to understand who God is showing himself to be here. Because we know that, uh, we know what Gideon is doing. Gideon is testing God, and he knows it. Verse 39, then Gideon said to God, after, he, after his first prayer was answered explicitly to the point that he could wring out a bowl full of dew from this fleece, he's going to do it again. And Gideon said to God, verse 39, do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. He knows he's testing God. He knows he's pushing God to the limit. So how does God respond? Well, he responds with patience. He responds with love. He's willing to accommodate Gideon's lack of confidence. He's, he answers Gideon's prayer two times. He doesn't get mad. He doesn't get impatient. Instead, you kind of get the impression that God wants to save his people so badly that he's willing to put up with Gideon's insecurities and his idiosyncrasies just to make that happen. That's who God is. And that's ultimately where Gideon's courage is going to come from. It's going to come from the fact that God is going to accommodate him. God is going to work with this flawed person to accomplish, accomplish his good purposes. And Gideon is going to grow in his confidence in this God. God is the, God's the hero in the passage. Gideon is not the hero. Who's the hero? The patient, tolerant, loving, faithful God who's willing to put up with this guy. That's who the hero is. And Gideon is still learning to trust this God. There's an interesting thing that happens in our text, and it, uh, it's a clue to all of this that we're talking about. All along in chapter 6, who is, God, who is God known as through chapter 6? Well, he's called, we've read it over and over throughout the Sundays we've been studying this passage, he's the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, all caps. That's who God is over and over in this passage. He's the Lord. And we know that when you see all caps L-O-R-D, that it's not a translation of the Hebrew word Lord. It's kind of a, it's a camouflage. It's actually God's name, Yahweh. But it's not translated Yahweh because there's a tradition of wanting to show the name of God reference. So they don't even, that's why you don't have the word Yahweh in your Bible, but just capital L-O-R-D, kind of tradition. And some Bibles actually are moving away from that tradition because they feel like it obscures God's purpose in letting us know his name. But that's who God is. It's his personal name. Until you get to this passage. And when you get to this passage, all of a sudden, God, God is not referred to as Yahweh. He's referred to as God, the more generic term, Elohim. And that's just kind of the generic term for God. It's like pastor versus Brad, all right? One's a personal name. The other's kind of a, could, could be anyone who fits that, fits that need, or fits that, fits that label, okay? And so you notice, all of a sudden, the Lord is just God, here in this passage. Gideon said to God, verse uh, 36, verse 37, I think it is, Gideon said to, or 39, then Gideon said to God, 
And then verse 40, then that night God did so. And students of the Bible think this is what's happening. They think that Gideon is using this term God, the generic term, because he really has not come to know Yahweh, the personal God. He's still, you remember we saw last week, he's still dealing with his semi-pagan upbringing of worshiping Yahweh and Baal and Asherah. And now he's just getting to know Yahweh. And through this new challenge, he's getting to know what Yahweh is really like and his graciousness and his patience and how, how much he wants to save his people. And Gideon is learning to trust Yahweh who called him. And he's going to show that trust. He's going to show that he trusts God by the courage he's going to demonstrate to carry out what God has called him to carry out which we'll see him do next week. And that's when God's work is going to get done. It's going to work, get done when Gideon trusts God enough to act on the promise of his presence. And so as we put all this together this morning, here's what we see. That usually doing what God wants is not a clarity problem. I would say that's true for me. And I'm going to guess that might be true for you, that it's not usually a clarity problem. Most of the time, the way God calls us to live is clearly spelled out. Following God is not a clarity problem. It's, much of the time, just a courage problem. And God's will always requires courage. If you want to get to a point where you want to follow God, but you don't want to have to demonstrate courage, then you're just never going to go with him anywhere. You're never going to get what God has created you to get done. You're never going to get it done. Because it always requires courage. We'll never get around that. But we can gain courage by learning to know and trust God and his character. We can reach a point of safety and confidence in obeying God because we know Him and His power and His faithfulness and His graciousness and His patience with us. And that gives us the courage to go with Him into new and unknown places. That's what we learn from this story. So, the way for us to respond to this truth this morning is to ask ourselves this question. Here's what I want you to think about. Ask yourself this question. Is there an area of my life where following God is not a clarity problem? It's a courage problem. Let me ask it another way. Is there something I know God wants me to do and I'm, I'm not doing it because I'm afraid? I'm afraid of the cost. I'm afraid of the unpredictable results. I'm just afraid to do it. Is there an area of my life where following God is not a clarity problem, it's really a courage problem? The answer to that courage problem is God's character, his good plans for you. The knowledge that God created you and me to do good works. Once we come to Jesus, we don't, we don't, we're not saved by good works, but we are saved to good works. And God's created those works, Ephesians 2, 9 and 10. And there are people whose well-being depends on you and me doing good works. The gospel, saving grace, common grace. There are people whose lives depend on you and me being able to trust God enough that we'll go with him wherever he shows us. That's the challenge for us. That's what I'd like to close with. I want to give you a minute to think about that question, and then I want to pray for you. And the question again is, is there an area of my life where following God is not a clarity problem, it's a courage problem? I know what God wants me to do, 
I'm just afraid to do it. I want you to talk to God about that problem. I want you to talk to him about how you feel, and I want you to reflect on his good character, his faithfulness, and then I want to close by praying for you and for me. So why don't you take a minute and bow your heads and take this time to say, hey, is there an area in my marriage, in my family, in my life trajectory, in my priorities, somewhere that God is calling me? It's not, it's not that I don't have clarity about what God wants me to do. It's that I don't have the courage to do it. I want you to identify that. I want you to talk to God about it. Father, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning. And I want to pray about these times in our lives when we know what you're calling us to do and we're just afraid to do it. It costs too much. It's too uncertain. We just don't trust you enough to follow you. And, and I know that we can all identify areas like that in our lives. And my prayer for this faith family is that you will help us to know you, the one who calls us to these things. Help us to know you in your patience and your faithfulness, your trustworthiness, your good plans for us. And my prayer is that you'll help my brothers and sisters here this morning and me follow you even when it's scary. And that we'll have courage that's based in your character and your trustworthiness. I pray that you'll show, uh, show us this morning steps you want us to take. Obedience, uh, obedient actions that you want us to engage in. And that we'll be bold enough to do that because we know you. We know you well enough to trust you with all these costly things. And I pray that as a result, marriages would be different, our families would be different, this church would be different, this valley would be different, the world would be different because we are bold enough to trust you and obey you. We pray that you'll do this. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.